And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Monday, February 27th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Robert O'Shaughnessy. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, the government's apparatus for secrets production could collapse under its own weight. Plus, the latest legislative attempt to get a better Social Security deal for certain federal retirees. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Homeland Security Department is inching closer to making awards under its much-anticipated First Source 3 small business IT products contract. While the timeline is still a bit fluid, the goal is to finally get this nearly two-year effort completed in 2023. For why it has taken so long to get this mega contract across the finish line, Executive Editor Jason Miller asked DHS Chief Procurement Officer Paul Courtney. It is an active procurement. There's only so much I can share. We had an unbelievably positive response initially. We had over 600 companies express an interest in, in First Source 3, which is great. More competition, more competition, the better. So um, we did receive over 600 proposals for phase one, as I mentioned. So with that volume, conducting meaningful evaluation proposal, it did take a considerable amount of time. We did have some protests, just to let you know, they have been resolved. That did slow things down a little bit. And again, we um, due process is very important. So if a vendor feels like they need to, to raise their hand and, and file a protest, understand just the, it's just doing business and we make sure we resolve those um, resolve those in the appropriate way so I really want to thank our veteran community for their input through first source three procurement process we received valuable feedback and we're gathering lessons learned I would say one of the feedbacks we got from first source two to, to the new procurement is way too much administrative burden on the contract administration side of things we've taken that to heart and we've made these revisions with first source three to help reduce that administrative burden once the award takes back. So again, continue the feedback for Source 3, all other procurements as well, but for First Source 3, we have taken a lot of that feedback to, to heart and made changes. So continuing through the evaluation process, I mentioned SAM.gov. Continue to just look at SAM.gov for current timelines and updates. What we can share during selection will be limited, of course, but we'll continue to post frequent updates about the status of First Source 3. If it feels like there's a void in time, Industry is very quick to reach out. We have a DHS industry that lays on mailbox, reach out to the contracting officer, but we'll continue to keep folks as posted as, as much as we possibly can as throughout this process. Our whole team's ready to award this and move forward. It just, it just want to make sure we do it right and um, make sure we have a great pool of vendors at the end of the day supporting our first source three contract. Taking a step back, whether it's first source three or whatever contract you're working on, and, and I know there's a few others that we'll talk about, when you get so much interest in a big contract like this, and you get more than 600 potential proposals. Do you all have a thought or, or has there been a discussion to say, you know, really the competition happens at the task order level. It doesn't really happen at this top master contract level. So why not just say, what's the lowest ceiling we can let people in or what's the lowest floor we can let people in? You know, if, if, if 550 or 599 of the contractors are minimally qualified, let's just let them all on versus going through this process and worrying about protests. Because, Paul, you, you and I know you've, we've been around long enough that if you make an award to 300 or 400, you're going to get 30, 40, 50 protests of, of, agent, of companies who didn't get on because they feel like I'm going to get shut out of this market. Has there been discussions? And again, you don't have to talk specifically on First Source 3, but has, have you had discussions internally about how can we make it so we focus the competition really at the task order level where price – really was what matters the most, where experience really matters the most versus the master or the the, the big contract level? Across the, the federal government spectrum, there's different different thoughts on this. Uh, I've seen vehicles where it's onboarding process is pretty easy. That Basically, majority of the vendors who want to do whatever contract it is, they go through a, a, a pretty quick process. They're added, to, whether it's a BPA or IDIQ, they're added to it. And then, you know, great robust competition continues. On the other end of the spectrum, it is Hey, if we're requiring companies to spend bid and proposal costs, which, you know, it's not the easiest within a, a private company to get those bid and proposal costs. You know, the other side of the coin is let's make sure we get the most highly competitive, highly qualified firms under the contract. Therefore, you know, the, when a BPA right IQ has been in place, the effort goes into it. So we have the kind of the best of the best to actually go through the procurements and less parties, you know, whether you get a protest of the, the onset of a BPA or an IEIQ, 
maybe you'll you'll get those protest points to resolve. You have a great group of companies that you know they can all successfully do the work under it. Not saying they wouldn't otherwise. So what we've done within the department, we're really trying to get down to you know the the best of the best who can meet whatever requirement it is. And we've mentioned we have innovative techniques that we do to coach our folks on. Some of this is not new, but we we um, we do coaching clinics, et cetera. You know, one is oral presentations. Another big one that we've done is we call them advisory down selects. It's not a, hey, you're not going to move forward. It's, hey, we advise you based on what we've seen so far, say in phase one, you don't look like you have the greatest chance of making an award at the end. So we're just letting you know now, and then you can proceed forward however you, however you see fit. That has worked really well for us. Um, I think, again, just letting being candid with industry, letting them know. So we're, we're kind of on the not let everybody in. We're more on the, on the side that's get the kind of the, the best of the best, depending on what we're trying to buy and really still have that competition in the beginning. But when we get down to it, we really do have the best companies. We, we got to look at price at the IDIQ BPA level. It's the way the rules are written today. If we didn't have to do that, maybe we wouldn't look at price initially, but we are required to do that. But once we get the task orders or the BPA and IDIQs awarded, we have a great group of, of companies. Again, to be fair to them, we don't want, you know, we don't think it's wise to have 300 companies going after every task order or um, BPA call. So that's just the way but, we've done things in the department. But I'm going to jump in because history has shown through a host of these multiple word IDIQ type contracts, the GWACs, that if you have 100 vendors, 500 vendors, you don't get 300 bids on a task order. You still only get three to five bids. And, and you all, and, and I, you know, I think a lot of folks feel for you, you and your team because you're in a non-winnable situation. If you say, we'll let everybody on, right, then people, oh, the burden of managing 600 people is, is tough on, on DHS. If you only let on 100 or 200, you're going to get 100 protests or 50 protests. So that That's going to delay it longer. And I think GSA and others are, are finding, okay, how do we kind of overcome that? And, and one idea is these on-ramps. Have you thought about that as another avenue yeah, and we're we're and just to be clear, we're okay with we don't like protests, but we we we're um we know they're they're part of the due process. We're looking at two things. One is on ramping. Um because I think if we put together a five, six, seven year contract, industry is gonna change, there'll be new vendors in the marketplace, et cetera. So we wanna have that's something we are looking at and we are putting in place with our, our bigger vehicles. But with that, on the flip side, we're also gonna have off ramping. So if if as you mentioned, if we have a say we have a vehicle that had 50 companies been awarded and only five or ten are really going for every every opportunity, a majority of them, and there's another 30, 40 companies that aren't, like we'll we'll have those conversations with those companies, but does it make sense for them to stay on the vehicle? Maybe we start off ramping. If a company hasn't done something in X period of time, do we look at off ramping them off the contract as well? Just to make sure we keep a manageable number of vendors under these vehicles that really are going hardcore, you know, going after these contracts and putting their best foot forward. Paul Courtney is the chief procurement officer at the Homeland Security Department, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the latest legislative attempt to get a better Social Security deal for certain federal retirees. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Two Social Security provisions have long rankled federal employees and others in public service. One is called the Windfall Elimination Provision, the WEP. The other is the Government Pension Offset, the GPO. They were established decades ago on the idea that for a portion of their careers, people with certain jobs were not covered by Social Security. Now a bipartisan House bill would revoke WEP and GPO. For details, we turn to one of the co-sponsors, Virginia Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger. Good to have you join us. Thank you so much for having me. And tell us exactly what this bill would do, precisely. 
Absolutely. So more than 50,000 Virginians are impacted by these provisions. You mentioned them, the WEP and the GPO. And what it means in reality is that so many retirees here in Virginia and across the country are seeing reduced uh, payments through Social Security because of these provisions. So the Social Security Fairness Act basically recognizes the sacrifice that these federal public servants have made, and it eliminates these provisions that reduces their payment. We've got more than 158 co-sponsors since we just introduced it again this Congress. And, you know, just for kind of context in terms of what we're talking about in terms of reduction, the windfall elimination provision reduces a public servant's retirement benefits by up to about $500 per month. And that's $500 per month that that uh, employee, that retiree would otherwise be eligible for, if not for this provision. Um, the government pension offset, this relates to spouses um, and survivor benefits through the Social Security program. And in some cases, uh, survivors of federal um, employers are um, uh, are receiving a benefit that can be reduced by up to two thirds of their monthly pension for what they should have had their late spouse not been a federal employee subject to this GPO. And it's outside, very real in terms of the impact on on individuals. Sure, and, and beyond Virginia, there's about two million federal retirees. Your estimate is that are affected by these or or people that are, and there's another, what, close to a million that come under the GPO? Yeah, that's right. All right. And would this apply to people now retired? They would get a bump? Or is it for people that are under these provisions from the past and when they retire, it'll kick in? So this would, if the bill were to pass tomorrow, it would go into effect next year. And so that would mean that moving forward, anyone who's previously seen reductions in their benefits would see that full amount. If it's the $500 per month in the case of WEP or up to a, you know, a, a two-thirds reduction in the case of GPO, they would see that change um, immediately beginning next year. And by the way, is there a Congressional Budget Office score for this one? Do we have any idea what the total cost to the government would be? I can't imagine it's that vast. The scoring on this, and I'll get you the exact numbers, but when we're looking at issues of fairness, right, so we shouldn't be looking to kind of reduce payouts on the backs of federal employees as a gimmick by which we're trying to potentially reduce outbound dollars. But this all comes from within the Social Security program, right? These are dollars that people paid into the program paid into Social Security, and now are not being able to receive the benefits that they are if they had had the same job, but in the private sector that they would be eligible for. So there is a minor impact on Social Security in terms of the, the time frame of kind of trajectory as it relates to Social Security's long-term viability and stability. But that's another conversation as well, right? There are clearly we need to make sure that into decades into the future, Social Security is a strong program and fulfilling its promise, but trying to eke out dollars here or there as it relates to the retirement benefits that federal employees are getting or retired public school teachers or retired firefighters, um, that's not the way that that we try to save money for Social Security because these individuals paid into it and they should be able to get it out the same way that you know, someone in the private sector or in a similar job function outside of the government would have been able to do, and as somebody outside of the government is able to do. We're speaking with Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger, who represents Virginia's 7th District, and you bring up a point I think is often missed. I think the assumption is that people that had those jobs back then, like CSRS employees, did not get Social Security but did not pay into it either. But you're saying that people actually did pay into Social Security for those covered jobs, but are getting the reduction in the payout. That's right. And so it's a reduction in the payout based on calculations for the GPO, for the WEP. But I mean, the, the bill is rather simply titled the Social Security Fairness Act because people paid into these systems and paid into these programs and they're seeing their benefits cut. And it shouldn't be. It is an, a really significant detriment to people who dedicated their lives to public service uh, as federal employees or as firefighters or police officers or public school teachers. And just a technical question, I mean, for the average person in the private sector, what you get in Social Security at the end of a working life is proportional to what you paid in. So how will this all be figured 
Is that something that's going to be incumbent on Social Security to go back through their payment histories, which they have on record there, and then determine what their actual payout will be henceforth? So the functionality is if the bill were to pass the House tomorrow, then move forward in the Senate and get to the president's desk. And again, we have more than 250 co-sponsors. Last Congress, we had gotten close to 300. So we know if the bill were to come before the House of Representatives, it would pass. We're working to build back up our co-sponsorship. But it would go into effect next year. And essentially, it would just remove those provisions that are subtracting dollars out of somebody's Social Security payments. So there are not kind of extravagant calculations that need to be made. It's no longer deducting unfairly because of this WEP provision or this GPO provision. Got it. Okay. And uh, speaking of those number of co-sponsors, these are both sides of the aisle that are behind this? That's right. This bill is wholly bipartisan. I've previously worked with my co-lead, Rodney Davis, a Republican from Illinois. He left Congress at the end of last Congress, and Garrett Graves, who has been an incredibly supportive member of Congress on this issue, Republican from Louisiana, he's now taken up the helm. And so Garrett and I have partnered on this. And we have Democrats, Republicans, people across the country, across the political spectrum, supporting this legislation. Again, last year, uh, last Congress, we got uh, up to about 300 co-sponsors in total. And uh, this Congress, we're, we're working to do the same. So it is wholly bipartisan, frankly, because people across the country, Republicans, Democrats, nonpartisans, East Coast, West Coast, and everywhere uh, across the country are impacted by this by these provisions. And the Social Security Fairness Act would rectify that for so many of the people that we represent. And what about the Senate? So we're working to make sure that uh, it'll move forward in the Senate. But I think certainly the the thing I can control is the number of co-sponsors that we get in the House side. Um, And anyone, frankly, who is aware of this issue that wants to do advocacy to their senators, certainly that's an encouraging uh, effort to take on. Um, But in Unfortunately, we have, despite the co-sponsorship, been unable to get this bill a vote in the House. But our goal is to get this bill a vote for the House and with a resounding level of bipartisan support, make sure that it's basically raising the attention uh, and garnering the attention of of so many senators. Certainly looking at the level of bipartisan support that that it receives among House members, the path would be clear for many of their senators from their states to also support. Um, but we're, we're working in concert to try and garner additional support on the Senate side. But really, it's a matter of getting a vote in the House first on this. Right. And there are so many priorities right now. You're all arguing about the debt limit and the debt ceiling, and people are already talking about things they want to put in the National Defense Authorization Act. I mean, it's pretty busy. I mean, it's only, what, just about March at this point, but yet you know how the time goes. So you're optimistic this session there will be a vote? I am optimistic this session. You know, notably the the debt ceiling and averting catastrophe by ensuring that we do not default as a nation is should be everyone's top priority. But Congress should be able to do multiple things at a time. And certainly working on the National Defense Authorization Act, working on the Farm Bill, uh, both of which are must piece must pass pieces of legislation this Congress. That is work that must be done and will be done. But it can't be used as an excuse for not taking a vote on a piece of legislation that, that frankly, has received so much support in the past for a piece of legislation. We know the votes are there and a piece of legislation that matters. It matters to people who are retired now. It matters to people who are on Social Security now. Um, and, and it is an issue that is urgent and one that I'm going to continue pushing for. And this is one where clearly the federal employee unions would support it. But this support goes way up the ranks to the higher level people, because in that sense, everybody's in the same boat with the WEP and the GPO. This is a, a piece of legislation that has received support, certainly from federal unions and employee organizations, uh, localized organizations of firefighters and teachers. In fact, among the, the best advocates on Capitol Hill, the Capitol Police officers um, in their off-duty time lobby for this because their retirees are impacted by it as well. So it's you know across the board advocacy groups for federal employees uh, as well as state employees uh, continue their advocacy because this is an issue that impacts public servants across the country. Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger represents Virginia's 7th District. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me.
And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive, along with a link to more information about the bill. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, Congress returns to work as the White House prepares to release its 2024 budget request. But first, the government's secret apparatus could collapse under its own weight. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Former President Donald Trump, former Vice President Mike Pence, and President Joe Biden have not much in common, but they did all get caught up with classified documents they took home. The incidents show a lot of things, including how cumbersome the classification itself is. My next guest spends a lot of time explaining just what a challenge it is. Yale Law Professor Ona Hathaway joins me now. Ms. Hathaway, good to have you back. Thanks for having me. And just review for us the sheer volume of documents that are classified in an era when the last five presidents have said we're going to default toward openness in our administration. Yes. So president after president has made such promises, and yet president after president has produced more classified documents than the president before them. In the last year that the government kept records of the total number of classified documents, which was back in 2017, they found that they had produced about 50 million new classified documents that year. So it's a lot of documents. And is that resulting just from the risk-averse nature of government? A lot of things are in place that can say no. Very few things are in place that can say yes, just because a yes could result in some political disaster down the line. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the big reasons that there's a kind of default towards classification over non-classification. There's a lot of different features, though. I mean, there's that. It's, you know, so much less risky to classify something than to not classify it. If you're working on something that maybe, you know, it possibly is classified, it's just a lot easier to classify it and a lot less dangerous for you personally as a person working with the material, because if you accidentally create a document as unclassified that contains classified information, you could get in a lot of trouble. You get fired, potentially even be criminally prosecuted. But if you classify something that doesn't need to be classified, it's not a big deal generally. So that certainly creates a lot of incentives. But there's a lot of other reasons that somebody working on classified material tends to work to classify things or classify them more highly. It's also the case that when you work in a classified environment, you have multiple email servers. So you'll have your unclassified email server, you have your secret email server, and you have your top secret email server. So think about the fact that how overwhelming your one inbox is. You have three inboxes suddenly that you have to monitor. And the top secret gets a lot less stuff and it's a lot more interesting. And so if you want somebody to read what you're writing, you're going to put it in a more highly classified level because it's much more likely to be seen. So that's another reason that there's sort of this impetus towards putting things at a higher level. Yeah. The moral equivalent of putting the exclamation mark on the email is to classify it. Yeah, exactly. You know, and and it's also the case that um, when you're working with classified material, you don't want others to see it, right? You don't want it to be leaked. And so if you put something in a classified server, you classify, it's much less likely to get leaked. So there's lots of reasons that for people working with classified material that they're more likely to, to classify something, even if the risk of it being leaked isn't really going to do any significant damage to U.S. national security. And the other question in all of this is the fact that what was found was not emails, it was not electronic. It was boxes of paper in all these cases, you know, next to the Corvette or on the floor, you know, there in Mar-a-Lago, wherever. I don't know where Mike Pence's was. But it seems like there's a lot of printing out of these emails or or documents are generated in some hard fashion, hard 
copy fashion that seems to belie the digitization drive that goes back, that really began late George H.W. Bush and got a lot of momentum in the Clinton administration. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think one of the reasons we're seeing this at the levels that we're talking about, so we're talking about the vice president, former vice president, and president, is that they're more likely to generate written documents for their consumption. So, you know, Joe Biden's not reading his, would guess, his, his, his email inbox. People are managing the flow of information to these high-level government officials, and they generally are managing the flow of this information through production of written documents that get handed to them um, during meetings. Um, and those documents, some of them, you know, the very highly classified documents, generally the best practice is for the briefer to take the documents with them when they leave. Um, but occasionally there's reasons for members to want to hold on to that material. They want to be able to read it and review it. They have a meeting coming up. They want to review it in advance. Part of a collection of briefing materials, which includes both unclassified and classified documents. And in many cases, probably some of these documents just are not such a big deal. And so nobody's really thinking that carefully about, you know, making sure that the document gets put back into a locked environment. We're speaking with Yale Law Professor Ona Hathaway. And there are rules, though, about taking notes and so forth. And so the printouts that are made for presidents and vice presidents, and I don't, I don't, to my knowledge, there is no computer PC terminal in the Oval Office that the president pecks away at. I, I, I don't think that's, I think that's the case. Then they get boxed. And how is it, what's the process by which they can even get their hands on the boxes? Yeah. So, you know, when they're leaving office, and, and of course, this is all, all the events that we've heard about recently are when the vice presidents and presidents have been leaving office and then documents get taken with them that should have been turned over to the National Archives um, or locked up um, for use by their successors. Um, and how does that happen? I mean, part of the reason that that happens um, is that, you know, in the, in the case of particularly former Vice President Pence and um, the documents that we're dealing with for Biden were documents that were produced when he was vice president and were boxed up when he left. In those cases, what happens is they're coming to the end of their term there's kind of a scramble at the end of vice presidential and presidential administration to kind of figure out, you know, what can we take with us? What can't we take with us? Kind of boxing up sometimes in a hurry um, because you you are trying to run the government um, up until the last moment. I mean, you are still vice president up until the inauguration. So you still have to be doing your job. Um, and then they have to box things up in a very short period of time and get it out of there so that the new occupants of the office can move in. And it's not the vice president, you know, Vice President Pence, Vice President Biden are not sitting in their office boxing the stuff themselves, right? There's a crew of aides who are doing that work and they're in a rush and chances are good. And we don't know the specifics yet, but chances are good that what happened is they're looking at piles of paper, the vast majority of which are unclassified and sticking them in a box not entirely realizing that there's some classified documents buried in there. I understand, for instance, with Biden, that there, a lot of the materials were condolence letters from the death of his son, and that many of these boxes were just boxes and boxes of condolence letters. And it happens to be a case that sort of in there, not great record keeping, but in there are some documents that are marked classified. You know, that sort of thing happens. The problem is that when you're the vice president, you're working with classified material, those kinds of mistakes really shouldn't happen. Yes. And... Is it fair to say or accurate to say that for each of those pieces of paper, there is an electronic analog somewhere and so that you could possibly shred the paper versions, but that wouldn't mean that the record is lost? That's probably right. I mean, in you know, these written documents, these, these printed documents generally these days are produced on computer systems and then those computer records are being kept. There may be handwritten notes as well. Um, some of what we've been hearing were taken from the uh, Biden house were, were some handwritten notes. So, you know, there are some documents that, that include either kind of writings on the margins or even just notes that are being taken in a meeting, which would be classified as well. But the vast majority of classified documents are ones that are produced on computers. And so there's a record, electronic record of that document as well. So really the volume of classified documents produced by the government is not directly related to people taking them home with them when they shouldn't when they leave office. 
No, I mean, we're seeing the very tippiest tip of a very, very big iceberg. And um, there's massive amounts of documents being created. And what we're talking about is just a tiny handful, really. I mean, across all the former occupants of the office. So again, when he was vice president Biden, vice president Pence and, and Trump as well, former president Trump, you know, we're talking a, a relatively small number of, of documents. That's pretty unusual. I mean, that, 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 and that's a very small number. You know, there, there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of documents, both that they will have seen uh, in printed form and that have been produced by their administration on all of those matters that, of course, are, you know, being held in computer systems and transferred to the National Archives as appropriate. And for those documents that are not classified, that a former VP or president might want to have for their library or whatever they want to do with it, those are also records that actually are supposed to go to NARA as well at the end of the administration. So are they allowed to have copies and remove those if they're not classified? I think it's a really important question. And I think this is part of the reason for the challenge is there is something of a judgment call on the margins. I mean, there's certain things that are sort of obviously government documents. So, you know, letters from heads of state and you know classified material that are relevant to government programs. Like those are clearly government materials. But there's some things that might be a little bit more on the edge, you know, a handwritten note from a personal friend, but who also happens to have a government office. You know, is that a government document or is that a letter from a friend? Um, how do we think about that? And I think that those are some of the judgment calls that have to be made. And, you know, again, when you're packing up in a rush, you don't necessarily have the, the time to think that through as carefully as you should. Now, ideally, what should happen is if there are things that are sort of in that interim space, what you should do is pack them up. And probably ship them off to, to to the National Archives and ask them to review them to determine which ones need to be kept at the archive and which ones can be shipped to the library or kept personally. So that would be the ideal way to deal with these sort of edge cases. But, you know, some of these things are personal documents and personal letters that people understandably want to keep for themselves. And sometimes the line between the personal and political is just hard to draw for these very high level officials. So, yeah, no real easy answer here then, is there? You know, I think the the answer probably is going to be to put in better systems. You know, I mean, this was a systems failure. I don't think that this was a case where, you know, with Pence and, and Biden, I don't think this was a case where they sort of maliciously tried to remove classified documents. It was a case where overworked staffers working too fast weren't as careful as they should have been. You know, that's a systems failure. Um, and so I'm, I'm confident that, that the next time a presidential administration ends, there's going to be more care given. And I think there should be more attention in general to the fact that, you know, again, we're, we're producing these huge volumes of, of these classified documents. And maybe this is a way, wake up call to realize that maybe some of these things are not all that important after all, and maybe they shouldn't be classified. And maybe we should be rethinking the system more broadly. Yale Law Professor Ona Hathaway, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, Congress returns to work as the White House prepares to release the 2024 budget. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The continuous showdown returns to Capitol Hill this week. Congress returns to session just days before the expected White House release of its 2024 budget request. For the outlook, here's WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And that budget is due now, I guess, on time. It's considered March 9th. 
a month late is now on time. Right, <laughs> but exactly. that's the White House, not Congress. <laughs> but that will start to really inform the talk, won't it? It will. The budget will come before a divided Congress now, of course. So while it's something of a wish list every year when the White House releases it, it is that starting point for what will be months of battling over spending priorities. And there's been little argument over federal pay raises for uh, feds over the last few years with the democratically controlled House and Senate. But this is going to be different. Some Democrats, including Virginia's Jerry Connolly, are seeking that pay raise of as much as 8.7 percent. But the Biden administration has generally followed the federal pay formula over the last few years. So it's likely to come in around 5.2 percent. Now, previous pay raises in recent years essentially took place by default since most Democrats didn't advocate a specific number other than people in the Virginia and Maryland delegations around the Washington area. But House Republicans are likely to push back on a pay raise, and that could lead to a debate over a specific number. Also, GOP House leaders are likely to press to require feds to require more payments toward their retirement. They could also push for a reduction in the federal share of premiums. So we could get a hint of all of this to come when the House Budget Committee starts to put together general plans for their appropriation bills. Yes, old ideas about the contributions to retirement that comes and goes periodically. But there are Republican co-sponsors, I believe, of that 8.7 percent pay raise bill. Yes, there are some. So there is, you know, some support. It's going to be interesting to see, you know, you have some people that will go along with it. And then you have the hard right of the GOP in the House, which is really pushing back and wants to make a statement on a lot of these issues. You know, a lot of them, as you're well aware, criticize the federal government as club fed, and they want to pull back on funding for various federal agencies. And of course, that will all roll into the whole debate related to the debt ceiling. So I think we're going to see again, this ebb and flow of arguments over the debt ceiling and whether House Republicans are going to get cuts in spending plans to go along with raising the debt ceiling. I guess Club Fed is like Club Med with frumpy clothes. (laughs) Exactly. And some hearings coming up this week. Veterans Affairs is having some issues on hiring and vetting employees, and they've just been struggling with filling their ranks out. And this is going to come up. Yes, the House Veterans Affairs Committee holds a hearing on Tuesday. And this comes after, as you mentioned, this hiring of new workers as the VA tries to keep up with the number of increasing number of patients. The VA is trying to make progress in hiring. And a top VA official said last week that the Veterans Health Administration has already hired more than 18,000 new employees in this fiscal year. And that brings the total number of employees to the VHA to nearly 390,000. The VHA has a goal of a 3% increase in staffing by the end of the this fiscal year. They expect to meet that goal. They're planning to hire as many as 50,000 employees by the end of this fiscal year. Also, a good bit of news for the Veterans Administration, there's been a lower attrition rate, so they are getting fewer employees that they have to replace. Obviously, that's a big issue at many of the agencies across the federal government. Right. And that PACT Act, I think, put a big workload on them, more patients and more people applying for benefits. And so I think that might be part of the factor there. Right. And then there's also quality of life in the military to you know back up the life cycle a notch. That hearing is also coming up in appropriations. Yes, this is a House subcommittee of appropriations. And literally, the hearing is called Quality of Life in the Military. That, again, will be on Tuesday. Lawmakers hearing from representatives of all the armed services. This is an issue that's been getting a lot of attention from the armed services committees as well. There's been a lot of complaints about military housing, the quality of the housing, the accessibility, and the need to increase pay for junior enlisted service members. Many young military families have had a hard time making ends meet with inflation being so high, just doing basic things like paying for groceries. There's also a new subcommittee of the House Armed Services Committee that's going to be led by Nebraska Republican Don Bacon, and it is going to specifically address these quality of life issues. Supporters say dealing with these issues is critical to recruitment and making sure there are adequate numbers of U.S. military personnel in the armed forces. Yes, uh, the Army has missed its recruiting goals, and they're working on a lot of fronts to try to upend that situation. Right. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller. He's Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. And I wanted to ask you about the it was a flurry of news a couple of weeks ago with Maryland and Virginia, their congressional delegations vying for the new FBI headquarters. This is like 10, 15 years now. This has dragged on big interruption in the Trump administration era. 
So when is that going to all happen? And does Congress have any say ultimately? Well, I know that this has been bouncing around for many years. And then, of course, it intensified under the Trump administration. And there was a back and forth about whether or not it would move from Pennsylvania Avenue to Maryland and Virginia. But now I think we are really getting to the nitty gritty on this. It's the General Services Administration that, of course, is going to make this final decision. And I think the reason that we're seeing so much movement is because the GSA had to reach out to both the Maryland and Virginia congressional delegations. That's why in these past few weeks, you saw them fiercely going back and forth over the criteria for picking a new site outside of D.C. in the either Virginia or Maryland suburbs. The Virginia delegation wants it near Springfield. They argue that it's near Quantico and the FBI testing area there. And they just feel that there are a lot of other issues that uh, point to that, including transportation that make it a better site there. And of course, on the Maryland side, they say, no, that's not a good site. They want it in Landover or Greenbelt. And interestingly, there are five criteria that are all going to be added up to 100 points for ranking the sites. And the GSA panel has to decide how they're all going to be meted out. One of them that's been receiving a lot of attention recently is one in connection with whether or not it's doing enough to help people in the area that are underserved. And this is one of the areas it's only going to get about 15 points in providing sustainability or livability of the communities around where this FBI headquarters would be based. Maryland says that things are getting shifted a little bit and that they felt that they had an advantage in Prince George's County over Virginia. Virginia says back and forth for the reasons I just mentioned, they feel that they have the best site. So I think to your original question, when is this all going to be finally decided? The GSA originally indicated that they were going to try to get it done by the end of the past fiscal year. That obviously didn't happen, but I do think they are going to get closer to a final decision in the coming months, and we could see a final decision, which of course will come under challenges, but that could come later this year. I'm picturing Barbara Mikulski coming out of retirement and flying in there (laughs) and saying, guys, you know, this is where it's got to go. She would be in there for sure. And of course, the GSA administrator is from Missouri, so she doesn't have a horse in the race, so that might mitigate for an objective decision. Interesting, though, does anyone raise the question of, you know, the community served criterion for the ranking that most of the employees will just move with the FBI that are already there? Right, exactly. That's a point that a lot of people are making. I mean, they're going to have to move now. The various congressional delegations point out that this will have a spin-off of a lot of other implications, obviously, related to transportation and other hiring and other businesses that may spin off with development and that type of thing. But other people say, well, you know, the FBI is fairly enclosed and it's not necessarily going to have the type of spin-off effect that many other developments might have. So it's an interesting back and forth. As you indicated, this has been going on for more than a decade, but I think we are finally getting down to the final point where we're going to hit the finish line on this. Well, if you want to see the spinoff effect, drive the dreary roads surrounding the new DHS headquarters. Oh, right. And if you can find anything that's pleasant and developed around there, let me know. Because I'll go back and take another look. And just real quickly, the Show Up Act from legislation from the House Republicans, is that going anywhere? Well, you know, the bill would require the number of federal employees returning to their offices to get back to the level that they were before the pandemic in 2019. As you know, the House passed this legislation a few weeks ago, and Kentucky Congressman James Comer urged the Senate to quickly take up the bill, but it's opposed by many Democratic senators, and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has shown no indication he plans to bring it up anytime soon. So at this point, it's doubtful the legislation requiring federal workers to physically get back to their offices will be passed in the Senate. Advocates of telework for federal employees continue to say there can be a balance with feds working both at home and in the office. And, of course, the number of feds approved for telework in the past several years has really gone up, more than doubling from just under 500,000 a few years ago to now more than a million. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. As always, thanks so much. You bet. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive's podcast edition wherever you get your shows. For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. 
the Navy's Office of Small Business Programs has some work to do to reach its goals for contracts awarded to small, disadvantaged businesses. That's from its acquisition statistics for the first half of the fiscal year 2023. We hear more about the Navy's plans from Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. And Alex, what's the problem here? So it looks like the Navy's been scrambling to meet their small disadvantaged business goals. What happened is in December of 2021, the White House put out an executive order. Government-wide, they wanted to see 11% of contracts going to small disadvantaged businesses. The Navy had originally had a goal of a 5% for small disadvantages businesses in 2022, and they had to move it up to over 8% to meet the new executive order goal. Well, they didn't meet their goal. This is Navy Small Business Program Deputy Director Evries Washington. So that executive order, uh, President Biden administration uh, passed saying that we need to increase that small disadvantaged business goal to 15% by 2025. The goal was previously 5%. We did not meet that small disadvantaged business goal, so we are doing a lot of outreach to help attract those 8A firms so that we can meet our small disadvantaged business goal for this fiscal year. And that mid-year report, is that something they usually do, or do they feel maybe they better do a kind of check mid-year this year, given those higher requirements? So, yeah, I think it's a thing they do regularly to check in on themselves. This year, the mid-year report came on February 14th. So with the fiscal year, that's about half a year. And what they found is that uh, small disadvantaged businesses were about 4.5% of what they needed to be. Their goal for this year is going to be 7.44. So they're they're close to halfway there, and they expect to have more contracts come in in the second part of the year. So it looks like the outreach they're doing is probably doing some good. Overall, they're looking to have 16.63% small businesses overall, and right now they're at 12.99%. So it looks like in terms of small business in general, they're doing pretty well. They just kind of need to keep moving with the small disadvantaged businesses. Well, it seems like they're going to have to accelerate because if they're at, say, 4.5% now and their goal is close to 8%, that means they have to do 12% in the second half of the year to average out for 8% for the entire year. So that's just math. So therefore, what are they doing here to kind of speed things up? Sure. So the Navy Small Business Office wants companies to get a little bit more involved in the process. What they're saying is that there are 10 buying commands within the Navy. Eight of them are Navy, two of them are Marine Corps. And each one of those commands has a small business advisor within the command. And that's the person who companies are supposed to reach out to to uh, talk through their contracts, tell them what they've got. In addition, the small business office is is going to be listing anticipated quarter and fiscal years when requests for proposals are going to come out. And so everyone can kind of plan going forward. Here's Evries Washington again. So this is your entry point. This is going to be valuable for you if you're looking to do business with the Navy or Marine Corps. You should be tracking these procurements. You have an opportunity to influence that acquisition strategy. If you have, in most cases, two or more small businesses that can do the work that's um, asked for in the procurement, then it should be set aside for small business. But we need industry to provide that feedback. She's talking to industry there to step up to invoke the rule of two then? Exactly. And she just says being more informed about the process and being more communicative with the acquisition officers is going to help everyone sort of tailor the program to meet what needs to happen for those small businesses to get involved. Um, She says when the DOD puts out requests for information, that's a golden opportunity for small disadvantaged businesses. Right, because, you know, you can't just simply get your DUNS number or get your listing in GSA System for Award Management, the SAM system, and then go ahead and say, here we go. You have to basically, what she's saying is, put your arm up and say, I'm a small business. And again, when there are two of them that can do this work, the procurement, it's a far rule of rule of two comes in and you have to award to one of them. So Exactly. Here's, here's what she has to say about it. The 8A companies, I need you to respond to RFIs. If they don't get the receipt from the RFI that they have two or more small businesses there that can do that work, that organization is not going to set that that uh, that contract aside 
for small business. So you've got to be able to respond to those RFIs. And again, she says it's a chance to shape the process. And that's one of the problems that you hear the small business representatives talking about is that they don't necessarily know where to go to shape that process, but she's trying to sort of get the information out there so they can do that. Here's one more comment from her about that. Uh, When you're talking to these small business professionals and you're utilizing that long range acquisition forecast, Before it hits the street, you can influence that acquisition strategy. Hey, I can do this work. Yes, there are set-asides, but that doesn't mean it comes dropping into your inbox. You've got to work to get business regardless of your status as a federal contractor or potential contractor. Now, this is a Navy initiative that we've been talking about, this reach out to small businesses to say, hey, folks, bid so we, we know you're there, and then we can get the rule of two and it makes it easier. Is this something that's happening across Defense Department, do we know? Yes, the DOD Small Business Programs Office is also very involved in this, and apparently this is a big issue with the secretary. Everybody wants to see this grow. Uh, this, the DOD Small Business Programs Office recently recently put out a small business strategy, and it lists three strategic activities. Uh, They're kind of the things you'd expect to hear from. They want a unified management approach for small business programs and activities. Uh, They want to ensure that the department's small business activities align with national security priorities, and they want to strengthen the department's engagement and support of small businesses. They have a couple different plans for doing that. One of them, or several of them actually, involve incubator-type projects. There's something called Apex Accelerators, and they have 96 of them across the country. I know you've talked to lots of people about these. And they're they're training and education for small businesses and to help mentor them. And part of that process is also going to be cybersecurity. The, The DOD is very anxious for everyone to understand who's a foreign business entity and how they're involved in the supply chain. And they want to protect the supply chains and the resiliency of the whole process. Uh, So that's one of the things they're going to do. And then another thing they plan on doing is restarting the Rapid Innovation Fund. It hasn't been funded since 2019, and it's that money they're always talking about for the valley of death. Uh, it, It will be money to help get products from the prototype stage off to production. All right. So lots of initiatives. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Tom. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the latest legislative attempt to get a better retirement deal for FERS retirees and other public servants. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin.